1: As China becomes the second country ever to land successfully on the surface of Mars, is the future of the fourth planet from the sun indeed red? Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on today's show the challenge of turning old electric cars into raw materials of
2: the future. Unlike a combustion engine vehicle, electric vehicles contain a bigger mixture of materials, and mixed materials are more difficult to recycle. And why Victorian pollution still shapes English cities.
3: The eastern side of London has a higher concentration of poverty. Strangely, this is echoed in cities all across England. But first,
1: after 18 minutes of waiting for a signal to be transmitted back to Earth, the crew at the Beijing Aerospace Center celebrated a historic achievement. China safely brought down a lander to the surface of Mars. The success of China's planetary mission comes three months after NASA landed its spacecraft called Perseverance on Mars. That
3: sound confirmed. Perseverance safely on the surface of Mars, ready to begin seeking the sands of past life.
1: The American Space Agency has been delighting Bothans ever since, with breathtaking images and social media video and audio footage from the first helicopter to fly in another planet's atmosphere it's an extraordinary time for Mars exploration.
4: America has been going to Mars since 1965, and it was able to do a landing like this in 1976. This is China's first Mars mission, and they got into orbit, they got onto the surface, and we expect them shortly to deploy a rover or to reveal that they have deployed a rover. So, you know, doing it all first time is quite impressive.
1: Oliver Morton is The Economist briefings editor and our resident space expert.
4: Tianwen-1, the overall name for the Chinese mission, left the Earth last July, along with various other Mars missions. And so Tianwen coasts out to Mars, going up against the Sun's gravity, and it reaches Mars on February the 10th, at which point it has to change its trajectory to go into orbit around Mars. And it did that successfully. And since then, it's been orbiting Mars until last weekend, when the mission controllers decided that they had enough data and enough confidence to actually do the landing maneuver.
1: Okay, Ali, tell me about this landing maneuver.
4: What happens is that, to begin with, the lander is locked up in a little capsule that's bolted to the edge of another spacecraft. And that spacecraft is in a a very sort of like elongated egg shape of an orbit around Mars. And somewhere, while it's a long way from Mars, it slightly changes its orbit so that the whole kit and caboodle are headed for the surface. And you can imagine this is quite a frightening thing. It slides down this new trajectory and then at a crucial point the two things separate and the orbiter kicks itself back up into an orbit. And from then on, in the immortal words of one of the Apollo astronauts, Mr. Newton is doing the driving as far as the capsule is concerned. So it comes in at very high speed, something like 17,000 kilometres an hour, encased in a heat shield, bleeds off a lot of speed from that, then it opens a parachute. This is not just any old parachute. This is a parachute that's opening at supersonic speeds, very hard to design. Parachute slows it down further. Then when it's getting down quite close to the surface, it gets rid of the parachute and moves to a rocket engine that's in the bottom of the lander. And then, in principle, it hovers just for a little bit to look to see whether the place it's setting itself down on has any big nasty boulders in it. If it does, it Jinks to the side, and if it doesn't, it settles itself down. And the two things, to remember, that make this even harder than it sounds, one is that you're used to thinking about air like this big, thick, soupy stuff that we have down at sea level on Earth. And on Mars, even down at the sea level of the surface, it's incredibly thin stuff, less than 1% of Earth's atmospheric pressure. And secondly, the machine has to do this all with no supervision, because at the moment, Mars is about... 18 light minutes away from the Earth. So by the time the people on Earth know that the capsule has hit the outside of the atmosphere, it's already either on the surface in one piece or burnt up in the atmosphere or a hole in the ground.
1: Okay, that's pretty incredible as a feat. Let me ask, how does it compare to NASA's current Perseverance mission in terms of the science and technology?
4: Perseverance is certainly a considerably more impressive mission in various ways. Perseverance weighs over a ton, is powered by a small nuclear battery and has a big suite of instruments on it, whereas Zhurong, the Chinese rover, weighs about 240 kilograms and has a considerably more restricted set of instruments. The other thing to remember is that because the American entry, descent and landing system is more sophisticated, it can really do precision landing. I mean it came down pretty close to the exact spot they wanted and that was a place close to sediments that one would really like to study, ancient delta sediments. Whereas The Chinese lander came down in a really big empty plane called Utopia Planitia, which is actually the same plane that one of the American Vikings landed on in the 1970s. And, you know, its biggest attraction really is that it's big and empty and you can set spacecraft down there even if you don't know to within 120 kilometers where they're gonna land. Okay, so the capsule has landed.
1: What happens now?
4: Well, we're waiting for the Chinese to tell us whether the Zhurong rover has rolled down off the platform on which it landed, down its little ramp, which is a technology not unlike the ones that uh, China's used for its moon rovers. And then it heads out across this big empty plane of Utopia, and it will do those rover things like poking at rocks. But perhaps the most interesting thing about it is that in its belly, it has a ground-penetrating radar which can look down beneath the surface of Mars. It gets down to about 100 metres. And that will be very interesting in looking for any signs of, remnants of or presence of ice layers in the subsurface. Scientists have now worked out that in the northern parts of Utopia, there's ice really quite close to the surface. If Viking 2's little trenching tool had been able to go 10 centimetres lower, it might well have found some ice. Indeed, it might well have broken on some ice because the ice is pretty tough down in the lower latitudes where wrong is, it looks unlikely that you'd see, well, you certainly won't see ice anything that close to the surface, and I'm not sure anyone really expects to see ice at depth, but this is why it's called exploration. You go there and you look, and if you do see ice at depth, you say, huh, now that's interesting.
1: Now, have other Mars missions not actually looked for this before?
4: Mars missions always look for ice to some extent, but it's not been standard to have ground-penetrating radar on Mars missions, and every bit of Mars is different. So, for instance, there's not a ground-penetrating radar on the Curiosity rover, which has been digging around a crater called Gale for the last decade, but there's no real likelihood of ice underneath Gale. There's a possibility in Utopia, and also... The same sort of ground penetrating radar will also allow you to see whether there are any sort of like other interesting geological layerings under your six wheels. So it's worth looking for.
1: This is all incredibly exciting. But looking at it in context, America and the Soviet Union did manage a soft landing on Mars in the 1970s. And now China's achieved it 50 years later. Are we overstating the success of China's space activities?
4: Really interesting question. I mean, the Soviet Union managed a soft landing, but only got signals back from the spacecraft for about 20 seconds. So to what extent that was a successful landing is open to a certain amount of question, but it was in the 1970s. So yes, kudos. I think what's impressive is that the Chinese have done this straight out of the gate. So yes, it's sort of like almost 50 years after the Viking landings. But the Chinese rover that's being deployed looks in terms of its overall sort of like technological level, like the sort of rovers that America could not deploy on the surface until the early 2000s. So in that sense, it's only sort of like 20 years behind. And if it turns out that Jurong does succeed and roll around and do its stuff, Doing that all on your first mission does suggest that there's an awful lot of catch-up learning that's been achieved in China, and that's not nothing.
1: So is China's mission more of a demonstration of its scientific might and its acceleration?
4: I think you might say that China's mission is the most ambitious first mission to Mars that you could have a credible chance of doing. And it basically, it shows that it's operating at close to American life. Well, it's doing the whole thing, going into orbit, landing something, taking images from orbit. That's a very impressive first mission. I suppose where the competition becomes more exciting in some ways is that for a long time, everyone has agreed that the next big step in Mars exploration is to bring rock samples from Mars back to the Earth and NASA and the European Space Agency have a program that is designed to do this, in which the Perseverance rover plays a role and they've signed memorandums of understanding and that's all settled out, but that's at the moment going to bring back samples sometime in the early 2030s. If China keeps catching up as fast as it seems to have been doing recently, It's conceivable that it might try and do something similar in a similar sort of timescale, maybe again in a slightly less ambitious way. So the NASA ESA mission is going to bring back a beautifully curated selection of samples. But frankly, a lot of Mars scientists would be quite happy if something landed, reached out an artificial hand, picked up the nearest thing there was and got the hell out of there. That would be a successful mission by many criteria. So the question of whether China can go beyond the state of the art. I mean, the only thing that I can think of that China has so far done that no one else has done is it successfully operated a rover on the far side of the moon, so out of direct contact with the Earth. But again, no one else has tried that and failed, but it was an interesting first. I think Chinese firsts will presumably start to come at some point, but at the moment, it's just really impressive catch-up.
1: Ali, it's always so interesting to talk to you. Thank you so much.
4: Great to like Ken. Talk to you soon.
1: And to keep up with how China's Mars mission fares over the coming weeks and months, subscribe to The Economist. Go to economist.com slash podcast offer for an introductory offer that's out of this world. The link is in the show notes.
0: Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.
1: While overall car sales have declined during the pandemic, electric car sales have boomed and they look set to continue to grow in popularity. Nearly 2.5 million battery electric and plug-in hybrid cars were sold around the world in 2020, and that number is expected to grow by 70% this year. Future streets will be filled with electric vehicles, not just cars, but buses, lorries, motorbikes and scooters. But what happens at the end of these vehicles' lives? Petrol and diesel cars are easy to recycle because most consist of readily recoverable ferrous metals, like iron and steel, and the recycling process is well established. However, electric vehicles, or EVs, contain valuable rare earth metals, as well as lithium and cobalt, which is in high demand and often short supply. But recycling electric vehicles is proving more of a challenge.
2: Unlike a combustion engine vehicle... EVs contain a bigger mixture of materials and mixed materials are more difficult to recycle. Paul Markili is our innovation editor. They need sorting in order to extract the different materials. And the added problem is that most electric vehicles use lithium-ion batteries and these are inflammable, so they need very careful handling. The way that most electrical waste is dealt with is that it's shredded into lots of small particles And that's tricky if your batteries like to blow up on you. So it has to be done in a special machine filled with liquids or gases that suppress combustion. And what's left is this sort of material called black mass. And then that's processed to extract the valuable components from within. That's so interesting. So in effect, it's about urban mining. We can basically take this and
1: treat it as its own form of mine and take out the minerals and elements that we need. How does that
2: processing take place? Well, indeed, it is urban mining, and one of the processes is pyrometallurgy. Now, that treats the black mass as if it is indeed an ore, and smelts it in a furnace to liberate a metallic mixture from which you can then separate pure metals, But like all sort of smelting processes, that needs a lot of energy. It puts out CO2 and it will also destroy some of the valuable non-metallic components such as graphite, which is used to make the anodes in batteries. And it also fails to initially liberate the lithium and that has to be extracted separately in other more complicated processes. So that's one way to deal
1: with it, but I'm sure the supply chains are sort of engineering themselves for electric vehicles specifically to rethink the process of processing it.
2: They are indeed, and that's where the second technique, which is called hydrometallurgy, comes in. This is more subtle. This leaches metals, lithium included, out of the shredded black mass by dissolving it in acids and other solvents. It's more effective, it gets more material, and it requires less energy. And it also will allow you to get materials that are non-metallic, like graphite. But it's a complex process, and it comes with the added expense of having to treat the wastewater that is generated to prevent pollution. But its overall advantages suggest that this is the wave of the future. So are any companies using this approach? There are indeed many, especially in China. And there are also some very interesting developments taking place in Europe and America. For instance, a Canadian company called Lifecycle, they're already the biggest recycler of lithium-ion batteries in North America. They accept the batteries, not just EV batteries, but also consumer batteries as well. And they basically sort of shred them up in sort of automated safe machines and they sort the debris. And they end up with three piles of materials: one which is plastic the other which is copper and aluminium and another which is the black mass now the plastic and copper and aluminium are sold off to other recyclers and then they treat the black mass with hydrometallurgy at one of their hubs which are the main processing plants Now they're trying to go global with this and they say they can recover cobalt lithium and nickel in a form that's pure enough for those metals to go on to directly make new batteries and that way they claim to recycle some 95% of the battery's materials. And there are others as well, Redwood Materials, for instance, in Nevada. They use a combination of pyro and hydrometallurgy in their process. They already recycle the batteries from the American factories of Panasonic and Nissan. And they too are setting up an operation that will take used um, lithium-ion batteries from general consumer goods, of which we already have lots.
1: Now, many of the operations are in China. Why China?
2: Well, the government has been heavily promoting the recycling of lithium-ion batteries for some time. I mean, although China is indeed the biggest market for electric vehicles and it dominates much of the materials used in them, it too is a little worried about the supply of the materials in the future. They're forecasts that lithium prices could triple by the end of the decade, and a lot of cobalt comes from Congo and that's a country that's often war torn and has a dreadful human rights record. So there will be potentially shortages of many of the materials needed in the recycling of batteries. Is Way of sustaining production. And there's a number of companies in China doing that. One is Broup Recycling. Now, that's a subsidiary of CATL, which is the world's biggest maker of uh, EV batteries. They have half a dozen plants using hydrometallurgy around the country. Now, they reckon they can recycle 120,000 tons of old batteries a year, which the company claims represents about half of China's current annual battery recycling capacity. Another firm. Gangfen Lithium, they are one of the world's largest producers of the lithium that's used in EV batteries. And they're integrating recycling along with the primary production of lithium. Gangfen have already installed a very heavily automated recycling plant at their base in Yangtze province. And they plan to build another as part of their mining operations in Sonora State in Mexico. Okay, perhaps a more important question would be, is recycling
1: on car manufacturers' radars and wider still Surely electric vehicles should be designed with recycling in mind.
2: Well, that's very much happening. Um, You can tell something important is going on when the car makers themselves are getting involved, and they are. Tesla is setting up a recycling facility at its factory in Shanghai, and that will complement one that it's developing at its battery factory in Nevada. And Volkswagen, they've also set up a big new pilot recycling plant near Hanover. And that is to recover the materials from batteries used in EVs made by its various brands. Now, the idea is that the firm's battery experts work with the recyclers to make battery packs easier to dismantle. Now, Frank Blohm who's the head of batteries for Volkswagen Group Components, he told me anyone who takes something apart first needs to know how it was put together. So they're doing that. BMW, which is Volkswagen's big domestic rival, will also be designing their vehicles from the start with mass recycling in mind. And then once you can take the batteries apart more easily, you can start to automate the process. And you might even be able to use some of the components in the batteries, like the cathodes, directly to make new batteries without them being shredded. Wow, that sounds like a really promising future. Paul, thank you very much. That's a pleasure, Ken.
1: And finally, as the Industrial Revolution began in Britain in the mid-19th century, English cities grew rapidly because of the influx of people taking advantage of new factory jobs. But the opportunities of the Industrial Era were far from evenly distributed. While some neighborhoods boasted wide avenues and fine townhouses, others sprouted crowded tenements between those dark satanic mills. A closer look at the maps of those cities reveals a curious
3: pattern. The eastern side of London is historically known as a poorer, dirtier side of the city, especially in Victorian history.
1: Elliot Morris is a data journalist at The Economist.
3: Now it's cleaner today, but it's still poorer, has a higher concentration of poverty than the rest of the city. Strangely, this lopsided distribution of poverty is echoed in cities all across England. The western halves of these cities are richer than the eastern halves.
1: That's really strange. How can that be?
3: Well, looking at London, you might think that the River Thames is carrying wastewater from the west end of the city to the east and maybe making the eastern portion less desirable. We know that downstream docks uh, might draw low-earning workers to the area, fishermen versus bankers. But if the river were the cause, then the currents would probably point toward the rougher parts of other cities. And in fact, this is not the case. Researchers have found that the eastern portions of Bristol and Manchester are also poorer, but there the rivers flow west. So if
1: it's not the river, how else can this mystery be explained?
3: Well, in a newly published paper by Stefan Heblik, Alex True, and Janos Zybelberg, researchers of poverty and atmospheric pressure, they argue that instead it's the wind that's making eastern portions of English cities poorer, not the rivers, by blowing air pollution east and causing the rich people to flee from the eastern ends of cities.
1: That's intriguing. How did they come to that conclusion?
3: Well, to solve this 19th century mystery, they used a sort of 21st century statistical wizardry. So they collected maps from 70 English cities between 1880 and 1900 of industrial chimneys. And they used an image recognition algorithm to pinpoint the sites of those pollution generators in all these cities over time. And then they trained statistical models to estimate skill levels using census data and baptism data in 5,500 different local areas. And by doing so, they can test whether or not the chimneys are closer to poorer ends of cities, and they find that's indeed the case, that industrial chimneys are ringed with working-class homes.
1: So which got there first, the working-class people or the industrial chimneys?
3: So this is the sort of chicken and egg problem with this question. We know that eastern ends are poor, but are they poor because the factories got there first or because poor people lived there and beckoned factories to come? So the authors drew concentric circles around each smokestack of these industrial factories or polluters, and they measured the share of working class laborers in different part of each ring, which all had similar travel times to a given factory. And then they used an atmospheric dispersion model, basically to simulate wind, to estimate where each chimney's exhaust would wind up based on local topography and the prevailing winds around the city. And they find that in 1817, before the real advent of coal and industrial pollution in Britain, that low-skilled workers were evenly spread in these concentric rings around factories, But by 1881, they were clustered in the direction of the prevailing winds, which carried noxious fumes to the northeast of these factories. So this implies that either the factory staff, poor workers, moved into the newly polluted areas, or that the richer residents that were there before the factory arrived and started polluting the area fled west. How does this translate to these cities in the 21st century? Well, the paper's authors found that this pattern of pollution and poverty is remarkably durable. For example, among otherwise similar regions of a city like Manchester, the share of blue collar workers in 2011 was 16 percentage points higher in the areas that experienced the top 10% of pollution in 1880 compared to those in the least polluted 10%. They also found the difference in house prices between the most and least polluted areas of the city uh, was a 40% reduction in the value of your home. So even though England cut back on coal decades ago and has passed Clean Air Acts and other regulations, the study suggests that Victorian smog casts a long shadow over England.
1: Does this pattern of wind direction to wealth distribution hold true for industrial cities in other countries?
3: The authors only investigated the relationship between pollution and poverty in England. Uh, In other countries with similar wind directions, we would expect a similar explanatory factor. But once you move out of Europe, the explanations become much more complicated. America, for example, has a history of segregating Black populations, especially in the eastern ends of their cities, but this has nothing to do with Victorian pollution. So the authors can't assess the question directly, although it'd be a great avenue for further research.
1: That is fascinating. Elliot, it is always fantastic to talk to you. Thank you very much. To our listeners right now, let us know if you're listening from somewhere that confirms or contradicts this trend. You can email us at radio at economist.com. And thank you for listening to Babbage. And while you're with us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The producers are Jason Hoskin, Abby Soye Dairo, and Amika Shortino-Nolan. The editor is Sandra Schmueli. I'm Kenneth Kukier, And in West London, where it's not quite as pollution-free as you'd think, this is The Economist.